This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, ethnobotanist Kathleen Harrison is joined in conversation by CIIS professor Natalie Metz to examine the complex relationship between plants, mushrooms, and human beings. This event was recorded on May 4, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Hi, Kat. Hi, Natalie. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming. <laughs> what an honor to get to be here with you tonight. I've been very fortunate to be a student of cats, both on the big island of Hawaii, which is currently experiencing some eruptive energy. The volcano is flowing. And also here in California, where I've done some bioregional ethnobotany courses with cat. And it's been a real treat, and it's really an honor to get to be with you tonight. Thank you. Yeah. Hmm. So our topic tonight is ethnobotany, and I think a great place to start would be, Kat, can you tell us what ethnobotany actually is? Um, I, yes, I can try to circle that big topic. Yes, uh, ethno, of course, means ethnic, ethnicity, it refers to people, to culture, and to uh, any of, of the many distinct categories of cultures languages, etc., in the world. Botany is the study of plants. So ethnobotany is really the study of the relationship between those two categories, the relationship between plants and people, plants and culture. And two things about that. In First of all, mycology or ethnomycology is the study of fungi, and although mycology is a very different category because fungi are not plants, I hope you all know that, um, they're super different than plants. They're actually evolutionarily more like animals or humans, but, um, but they've been swept into the ethnobotany category for a long time, so we still use that gloss to cover them. And, and then I... I would like to point out that um, in the definition of ethnobotany is um, the way that we think of nature, the way that we think of plants, and the way we name them, the way that we imagine who they are, how real they are, what our myths tell us in any given culture. So it's important to not just think of it as uses or pragmatic or... Um, you know, kind of a list of this plant is for that and this one is for that. It's very much about the worldview that perceives the plant world, too. The whole cosmology, the whole gestalt of it. So not looking, like you said, beyond the lens of how, how a people or a person might utilize a plant for a purpose, but really what is the myth or worldview that this is steeped within. So what do we learn about a culture when we look at their relationships with plants and vice versa, what do we learn about a plant when we look at a culture and their relationships? When we look at a, at a culture's relationship to plants, to the plant world, we really see the worldview of that culture. We see the basic um, structure of what people feel is real, 
of how the world operates. You know, if it is as really all of our ancestors, whatever your ancestry is, all of our ancestors, and still many parts of the world, this is true, um, were animists. And so they believed that nature is alive. Nature is um, made up of many beings all in a conversation with each other. That Our species is just one of those beings. That each species is, is a being with a voice, with a persona, and with a set of relationships. Not all of them you know, rosy, so to speak, um, you know, uh, all sorts of relationships, just like, like we have. And so, and yet, each culture, uh, I mean, ethnobotany generalizes, and I tend to study patterns, but it also, each culture has its specifics, its specific folk names, its specific recognitions of what the uh, presence or power or um, uh, strength and weakness is of the other species, and that comes through in the language, and that comes through in the relationships. And, and so uh, you understand, if you look, if you follow that thread, why is this plant in a pot at the front door of so many homes in this village, you know, or, um, you know, why do so many of us have uh, a certain plant in our garden, and what is the history of relationship to that, that it's not just about what's in the plant market right now. You know, there's something else being handed down. Then there, there's so much information, any thread that you follow there, there's so much information that branches off of that about the culture of origin and its migration because things didn't just originate in one place and stay there. And so it's migration through time and through many hands and through the oral tradition, and through the application of meaning to plants, you know, up to the present, till to the moment where it's in the little bottle that you're looking at at the herb store, or it's, you know, growing in your grandmother's garden, and, and what does that mean? What is the story behind it? Yeah, the, the relationship that we have with the plants um, is informed by the worldview, and the worldview informs the relationship as well. It's a, it's a mutual symbiotic relationship, essentially, from what I see and what you're sharing, yeah. Um, could you maybe just share a few examples about, um, I know we've talked in the past about kind of the solid, invisible, or visible world of plants, maybe a little bit about maybe material culture or how we conceive of these different types of relationships with plants. Yes. Well, material culture, if you're not familiar with that term that comes from anthropology, um, is the, the study of things people make and use study of things, basically, that people create, often from plants, sometimes from minerals, but if you think of all the tools and baskets and clothing and buildings and um, any uh, threads and uh, anything that we have crafted out of what is around us, that's a product of human beings that somewhere, somewhere in the past um, having a need and having some materials and putting together in their in the, the amazing ingenuity that is a, a, you know a key part of the human persona um, like we have a situation or we have a need here are some materials how do these become that that tool that garment that dwelling and um, so there's a fascinating history of that relationship but often 
thousands of years later, because these relationships are, um, are, are so old, I mean, they're as old as our species, but actually only fairly recently we're realizing that other human species on the planet were sophisticated enough before us and to some extent overlapping with home, early Homo sapiens um, to have their own ethnobotany, which is incredible to think of, that there's been more than one humanoid species on this planet that has its own plant relationships and actually did some ritual and like Neanderthals and maybe Denisovans and these others, you know, we're just figuring that out. But um, that discovery of what can, as I always like to say, when I'm thinking about a plant, who is this? I always put it into the, the personified version because I, I think actually our innate skills are better at recognizing humans and human qualities than they are at recognizing less familiar qualities. And a lot of people in our you know, world where now so many of us have been separated for whatever reason from our traditional ancestry and from the oral tradition and from being raised with plants in a place that we will then go on living with them and understanding them. So we're sort of like having to start the world over again many, many times, each of us, you know. But one skill that we've retained is how to read people. And so if we take those like, oh, who is this? How does that person feel to me? Do I feel like talking to them? Oh, that person kind of makes me feel like not talking to them. <laughs> or, you know, whatever our, our insights are, they're visual, they're energetic, they're communicative. Um, if we apply those to plants, begin by asking, who is this? Then we have a technique for using skills we have for understanding something. It's good to learn botany. It's great and it's great to learn your native plants of your region, and it's great to learn the native traditions of your region or of a place where you travel to or live, and all of that. That is wonderful to learn, too. But it's a somewhat different skill set. I'm not sure if that's what you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate you speaking to the value of anthropomorphizing something yeah. and yeah. personifying it as a term you used, but yeah, giving or imparting humanish qualities yeah. to, um, which allows for a relational lens that is familiar yeah and what comes up as you share about that is um at some point in one of the courses i was in with you we talked about plants as primordial beings these beings and then they chose how to cloak themselves and how to show up and where to live and what type of flower or scent or leaf or root to put out so um you know, these are these are wise intelligent beings and we have had relationships since the beginning of our species time. So it's interesting to look through that lens of history and see what were those early relationships? How did people come to value a particular plant for food or for medicine or for shelter or for cordage or whatever it was? And very often people will say, because there's an origin story in most cultures that are still connected to their place of origin or to the place they've migrated to that have been connected to a place for a long time, there's generally an origin story for the key plants that that culture relies on. And those stories often have to do with either the plant itself said, you live on a river, you need paddles. You've got a simple raft figured out, but you don't have a paddle. I'm the paddle tree. <laughs> Hello, you can respect me. 
You just have to learn how to work with me, and then I will be the best paddle of all the other trees around. And this is the species that then whenever you see me, because each species being a single being, whenever you see me, you know, oh, there's the paddle tree. I can make a beautiful paddle. That paddle knows how to navigate the river. It's not just that it's good wood. It actually knows the river, and it knows how to help you navigate. That's a typical story. I've heard that one in the Amazon. Um, so when outsiders come and, uh, and, and say, you know, like eager novice ethnobotanists or tourists <laughs> come and say, oh, everything's used for something. What is, what is that tree used for? And what is that tree called? And, and they'll say, well, it, it's called the paddle tree. And like, why? Well, obviously, because it makes paddles. <laughs> That's its essence. It's like come through. Mm. So that idea that each species has a soul or an essence or something that is eventually recognizable. And often there's a story even about um, how did you first discover that? How did it first make itself known? And that often has to do with sacrifice, mm -hmm. that the people made some kind of sacrifice. They had to, they didn't want to, but they lost a key beloved person or they suffered some catastrophe. And in this pattern of discovery, of uh, human knowledge, uh, always seeking to discover new ways to relate to nature, that pattern, the way it's portrayed on the larger level is that the sacrifice has a gift in it. And if you make it through that, then the very place where you buried the most beloved person of the tribe is where the plant arises that saves the next hundred generations from starvation or something like that. You know, Also, psychedelic plants arise often from sacrifice in different mythologies like that. They're kind of like practical mythologies. Where did everything come from? Why is it, is it here? How did we learn about it? Yeah, we see this thread through various cultures as you're sharing. I'm thinking about the taro plant, the mythology of the kalo, as they call it in Hawaii, emerging from a sacrificed or a body, a human body that was planted. The corn, various cultures around the world have this relationship of um, paying homage through flesh and blood back to the earth and to the gods and then something new emerging that can then feed the people and the culture and the the plant community. Yes. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So Kat, I'm, I'm curious as we're sitting in this position now where it's amazing that we can go into an herb shop and have a distilled essence of a plant, whether it's an essential oil or a tincture or, you know, with the tap of our phone, we can look at a botany app. We can, we have so much um, plant, I would say, knowledge or information, perhaps more appropriately, available. Why is it important to study ethnobotany at this time? Like, what's, why is this significant in the times that we're in right now in terms of the, the lens of relationship? Well, it's a... Um, it's a... I feel it's important because... Um, because the very word you used, availability, we have everything practically available to us. We have, you just, you know, look it up and there it is. And then it's, you don't have to know something, you know. So we don't kind of 
pay the dues of learning what something is or growing it or finding it or having generations that have kept that knowledge handed on to us and knowing that's a responsibility that we just learned that, that it's the gift responsibility um, equation, you know, which really I think makes a better balanced person and society. So, and we've got, you know, all this diversity of all of these cultures in the world and we have of course, as we all know, a shortage of respect for other cultures in many cases, and yet so much of the knowledge of what we depend upon in food and in medicine and in fibers and in all of these things um, has come to us because a hundred, a thousand generations of humans somewhere cultivated that knowledge and experimented and did their folk research, told each other about it, refined it, selected better versions of that plant, turned it into stories, shared it with the children, cultivated it, respected the wild sources of it, all of those steps that have gone through all of human history. And now we're in this like very short crunch, you know, of the last the last 10,000 years of agriculture, the last 500 years of, you know, exploding around the world, Europeans particularly, and colonization and imperialism and all of that. And this huge swirling of availability and, and a swirling of information and a loss of meaning, you know, a loss of respect for, for a lot of those. So there are too many plants for anybody to learn them all. And that isn't really the goal, to be an encyclopedia. It's more to, um, I think it's more to cultivate a sensibility and to cultivate a way of, of questioning, questioning yourself and questioning the world. Whenever you develop a desire for something, when someone tells you, oh, you should really look into this, when you see a plant that speaks to you, that appeals to you in some way, whatever, intuitively, visually, it seems pretty, it smells good, whatever, then make it a project, or consider this at least, make it a project to look that plant up, to find out where it came from, you know, to know that its ancestors are 600 million years old and, you know, the, the wild form of this only lives in South Africa or Australia or something. And we've, like, cultivated a little in recent time, in the last 100, 200 years, cultivated some version of it, transferred it to where it's more useful to us, created a market, exchanged a lot of money and goods and energy, taken it out of its context and lost its history. Mm -hmm. Now, we know a lot of us feel that way about our own histories, right? And how interesting it is when we connect up with and really deeply think about what are your roots? Where did your people come from? How many kinds of people made you, you know? Because now we're all, so many of us are, you know, swirled together. And... Um, and then that, when we learn that about ourselves, we tend to honor it. Like, oh, I didn't know I was part Italian, Southern Italian. That means I have these kind of, you know, tastes and these kind of roots, you know. And so when we form these relationships with plants in, 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 in an abundance, in a society of abundance like we have now with so much choice, it leads us not to be very conscious of the essence of what we engage with. So I think it raises consciousness, just to, to ask these questions. And then on the, for someone to actually become an ethnobotanist and really do 
the field work and do the research and whichever of the you know thousand directions you can go with with ethnobotany, um, that has that has a different. Uh, it's personally very rewarding, and maybe you'll become a teacher and hand it on, which is sort of my agreement. Share, go out and find things as long as you share them. That's kind of the economy of knowledge that I like to work within. And um, the concept of reciprocity and how we've, that can be lost when we're in the place of like, okay, I buy a tincture off the shelf or I look something up on online and there isn't that relationship and there isn't necessarily that same energy of reciprocity and exchange like a, um, I think of the concepts of permaculture too, you know, people care and earth care and fair share, like these are all related in terms of um, thinking beyond just how can I as a human being utilize this thing for my purpose? You know, what is the relationship and what is the history of relationships that allowed this particular medicine plant, this particular paddle tree, for that information to be preserved in a way that really, in, from what I'm feeling like, needs to be honored really honored and respected and trans well it's translated. part of what we're still all clearly learning we need to honor you know indigenous people everywhere we need to honor our own ancestors and remember that everyone has once upon a time indigenous roots somewhere and that's true of all the plants there's a whole huge topic in ethnobotany which is fascinating about the wild and the tame what is that plant still wild only wild? Was it domesticated or a strain of it domesticated at some point? And then it was brought into agriculture, early agriculture, or brought into gardens. And um, what is the difference between those? And what, you know, what is the difference in medicine or food that's wild or grown, domesticated? What is the difference in the effect on the environment? Um, do we respect always do we respect the people who figured that out you know as you've heard me talk about how do we um, every time we eat corn or maize maize is the proper name for corn really um, which came out of you know a valley in Mexico 10,000 years ago just another grass with a little seed head on it and human beings over a thousand generations had to cultivate it and select qualities and observe and share information and cultivate and select again and again and crossbreed to get to where we have the incredible diversity of corn that we eat now around the world. And, you know, I don't do it every time either, but I try to remember oh, this is the maize plant. Oh, this was a wild, small grass 10,000 years ago. Thank you to all those people who noticed and noticed and noticed and kept handing it on and said to every child, you have to remember this. We don't have a way to record it other than telling the story and pass it on, you know? And that's just one example. And then you look at all the others. So there's that, but then also ethnobotany is always evolving. It's not a static study. We're evolving it right now by our relationships to certain plants and to certain habitats. And um, sometimes it's because a crisis causes another wave of kind of 
folk research or folk technology looking for a solution to something. And so we look at a plant we already know in a new way. Oh, maybe if it does that, it could also do this. Or what if we use a different part of the plant for this kind of medicine? Look, it has a different effect than the, the root does, than the leaf. Or um, we develop appetites that are different. And of course, you know, the whole evolution of cannabis is a fascinating topic and it's always current because it's always changing. You know, not only the varieties and the breeding, but the way we think of it, the way we, the way the marketplace works around it, the way spirituality works around it, which cultures kept and traded that knowledge over many thousands of years in Asia and then Africa um, before it ever came to North America, you know? And um, I, just, I just think, especially when we have, and everybody has a few plants that they're very, very close to in their lives, you know? Um, there's a you know, fascinating development going on right now with the fiber shed movement and the interest in where are the fibers that you wear coming from and what, was the, what is the true cost of the plants that we use, the true cost to human lives somewhere, to, um, you know, the marketplace at large and to the, uh, the byproducts, the, the waters where it's grown or died or whatever, you know. So the fiber shed movement is an example of a quickly evolving ethnobotanical phenomenon which is people are looking at, are there fibers we can actually grow where we live and make clothes from and maybe not have so many because they're intensive, but then, and can we dye them with plants that grow where we live or, or our neighbors do? And can they be actually not just natural, but sustainable in that way, you know? And can I actually know what I'm wearing? Is it possible to know what fibers and dyes I'm wearing? I mean, how many of us know what fibers and dyes you're wearing? I don't even know all the ones I'm wearing, but it's a question, right? So all of these kinds of questions cause us to think about things more deeply and to have more respect for the invisible people who've come before us, invisible to us, who've helped build this reality. And I think, I think and since we're so out of whack in so many ways, that if we were more conscious and asking more questions just about the plants we engage with, and not only the plants of consciousness, but the practical ones, you know, that we'd all be more awake and probably take care of the world better, too. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, just, again, tending relationship, you know, tending relationship, which when I think about looking through the lens of regional ethnobotany and my studies with you, there's ways in which we look to see, you know, what did or do the people of this land what do they do to relate to the plants? But there's also ways that we can, we are evolving this process. Where ethnobotany is, it's a co-evolutionary process where as we learn about, say, a fiber plant that might want to grow in Northern California that came from somewhere else, how can we tend that and then look around and see? What are our other neighbor friend plants that we can bring into this practice of fiber making or shifting our diet? I'm so thankful for purple sweet potatoes right now. Like, thank you, whoever spent the time selecting beautiful, deep, rich purple sweet potatoes. I just have this great image okay, in my mind. Ones. Yeah, that's <laughs> amazing. So, yeah, really um, tapping into that gratitude for the lineage, for the ancestors that worked so hard to make it such that we can be sitting on these chairs, on this rug, in these clothes. It's 
it's phenomenal, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. And so, we have a responsibility um, mm-hmm. to, per, to uh, steward the knowledge and to translate it to our friends, our family, our descendants, thinking seven generations ahead. What kind of legacy do we want to leave in this moment around our relationships with plants and the planet and, the, I would say, the cosmos and beyond, too? Yeah. And I think an important issue that's really coming up and should is um, are the wild ancestors of that mm. plant, the whatever we use in our, in our commodity-driven life, um, are the wild ancestors still there? Because all the plants have ancestors, too, you know? And, um, and where are they? And is that land, that forest, those hills, is that still protected? Do those wild ancestors still exist? Because if we're under the kind of stress everyone's predicting now, climate stress and all of this, you know, then many of those ancestral plants that are still wild have traits in them that were bred out to make a product in this kind of sweet spot that we've had in time since the last ice age. This has been a very um, lovely little era we've been in, and it's changing. And um, that's why agriculture arose in this time, and it's why our population globally exploded, is really very much because of uh, a number of factors coming together at the same time, but but very much climate. And so, um, you know, it's no secret that in order to maintain a food supply and these other things, we need to look at the surviving ancestral plants for traits that we didn't call upon when they were first being tugged into domestication by selection. And um, and along with that are the people who lived with those plants for very long. The people of, for instance, right here, Ohlone people, they're still here. And they know the plants. Some people know the plants very well. And so that, so knowledge holders with the plants that have been marginalized, the people have been marginalized, the plants that are holding these special traits have been marginalized, they're all still here and we just don't see them very much because we don't know to look. <laughs> and, um, and, and really that, that's where it gets to that, that idea that, um, that M. Cat Anderson coined, tending the wild. You know, that idea, it's not an idea, it's a practice. She gave it a name because she looked at many different indigenous California people, but about how they relate to nature and managed it until they were stopped by, you know, the birth of California. Um, Managed nature in a way that maximized the health and um, productivity of the plants, the animals, and the humans. That it was a three-way, um, and the fungi, so really four-way uh, relationship that took constant attention and small, delicate techniques, but they had to always be going through, whether it was the seasonal burns or the coppicing of wild plants, cutting them into shapes that would keep them healthy, but would also produce the best walking sticks and arrows and tools, you know, and uh, same on the seashore, er- everywhere, and and then magnify that around the world. Our ancestors knew that in Europe or wherever your ancestors are from. Um, and that kind of knowledge, that ability to pay attention on that level and to always be adjusting your 
delicate management of the natural world in order to bring the best outcome for everyone is really, that's a, that's, it sounds like more than you can imagine doing, but for all the information that we modern people track that's invisible, digital, celebrity, blah, 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 you know, knowledge of all that sort, we track tons of knowledge. So if you really like probably had to empty out some of that cash that you have and put in this other kind of data, you know, we'd be, a, we'd be walking in a little different world, you know, but at least to respect the people and the plants that have been here for so long and have that and could carry on if they're not blocked, mm -hmm. basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking about a conversation I had recently with Winona LaDuc about mm -hmm. um, reclaiming seed sovereignty and reclaiming um, the wild rice that grows up in northern Minnesota and how the impact of just damming up the rivers changed those indigenous people's access to a food source that they tended for thousands of years. And now that there's all sorts of initiatives to shift the water systems, the rice is coming back. And it's just this, um, it, it, for me, it just speaks to this level, how beyond the personal nature it is, there's a societal healing that has to happen to allow for this tending of the wild and all the relationships involved. There's a, there's a deeper systemic healing. Um, I'm sure we're all quite aware of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also, I, I'd like to say about ethnobotany, one of the things that I find most um, charmingly addictive about it <laughs> is that it's just filled with stories. I mean, if you like stories, there is just so much there. There's so many, you know, anecdotes, myths, songs, relationships between different plants, because the plants are, you know, not all, you know, if we're, I like to use the word personify because I think of persona as an entity that's not necessarily human. You use the word anthropomorphized and, and people do, but it's not just human qualities, you know, I mean, we don't anthropomorphize every animal that we see, we look at those animal qualities, you know, so traits or qualities of different plants are not always necessarily friendly. And a, sort of a, in terms of evolving ethnobotany, something that I think that's interesting that's happening right now is, um, and you know, who knows, maybe it came out of late 20th century herbalism and the fact that more women are interested in that than men, or maybe it came from the, um, you know, boom in ayahuasca and the smattering of translated indigenous knowledge that's come through several layers to Californians, for instance. But, uh, but there's this tendency now that I, I see in social media and in just the way people talk to call, to feminize plants, to call medicinal plants, especially she, food plants, she. And I always think, because I've spent enough time on field work with some very special native people in mostly in Latin America, but but somewhat in Hawaii and and uh, so I always try first when I hear something that like piques my interest to think, oh, what would my native friends think of that? You know, of that comment, that perspective. Well, they would say, well, first of all, they're not all girls 
you know, and they're not all your friend. And some can be your friend, but you really have to coax them and you might get them into, into a spat, maybe even for some years, and then you have to like win your way back. And like, it's just as complicated as this world with humans, you know. So not to like, in our effort to embrace plants, our new renewed effort, not to oversimplify it, you know, and just say, oh, they're all really sweet girls here to help us. <laughs> that's part of the evolution of ethnobotany that's so interesting to watch if you stand a little outside it and be the anthropologist watching plant people, which I, I do like to do. Yeah. And if you read the botany of desire, perhaps it is that the plants are actually working us to move around the planet and get their agenda put forth. <laughs> well, they're survivors. They're, they've been doing the survival thing a lot longer than our species has been. Yeah, and they have many, many methods. And, you know, reproduction is the key method to surviving. So if you can hook yourself into human needs, you've got to, we're, we're, you know, we're, so, we're natural addicts. So if you can get hooked into us, then you've got a good long ride there. <laughs> Yeah, will you share with us a little bit about some of these wonderful experiences you've had in the field? And, and maybe maybe they weren't all so wonderful and glamorous with all the girl plants. but <laughs> Or maybe could you speak a little bit to kind of what have been some of your primary methods for approaching your studies mm -hmm. as a starting point? Yeah. Well, you know, whatever field you're in, I think you, you realize you need to uh, develop trust with someone to be able to have a working relationship with them. And so I was um, a young traveler, you know, very informed by psychedelics in the 1960s and part of the traveler movement. There were many of us who lived on very little money and scattered ourselves around the world, spending a long time, as much time as possible, you know, pretty embedded in other cultures. And they weren't all wired yet, so you actually really... Um, could kind of step into another world, although always still being the outsider. Um, but I had had the privilege of uh, being taken to Mexico as a small child by my my father and my mother and brother and I, and we we spent several months in a village on the west coast of Mexico in 1954, <laughs> and um, and we were the only gringos there, and um, and that was watching how people used plants, how they bathed in the river, what they ate, how they related to the animals, both tame and wild, and all of that, just really deeply informed me. I was six, and that's sort of where I became me. And, um, and so then later, in my late teens, I started traveling on my own and, um, and found that I needed to go very slowly, that I needed to um, use my intuition and my senses about where was a good place to stop, who was a good person to talk to, how to approach them. And I learned pretty young that either talking about plants or babies was a way to, like, you know, be engaged in conversation and be not threatening. And it was just, you know, a little bit outside of just actually talking about the person that you're talking to. And, um, but the plants were very, uh, 
were very good because I could see a pattern of different people using variations on the same thing, and that if I just kept collecting impressions, then I could bring that to um, a new conversation. And when someone, you know, opened their door or said, um, oh, if you'd like to know more, I'll show you more, or, well, there's a place you can, empty little house you can stay in down the way if you, if you want to stay a little bit and learn more. This learning about plants seemed to be something they understood and valued. So that was a, helpful for me in learning not only about plants but about people and methods of fieldwork. I didn't call it fieldwork. For some years, I didn't know the word ethnobotany either um, until I was like 25. But uh, And then I, I you know, do think that being part of the West Coast subculture and being deep in the very early psychedelic years and all the, you know, it was a, you know, chaotic time and all of that, but it was, you know, absolutely wonderful. And um, if you survived it, and, and most of us did, and... But I, I think that um, insights gained in that process and, I don't know, the newness, constantly renewed experimentation that was going on between people and in our relationship to nature at that time, in the late 60s, right here in Northern California, was just like, I mean, I went to college and I got degrees and all that stuff too, but, and I went in and out, you know, but that was a really helpful part. So was learning to really look at plants and draw them. I learned to draw them before I knew what to call them. And that perception, visual perception, can you really look at something and take in its form? What does the form tell you about who it is? And then later about what its use is and that kind of thing. And then, um, and then just taking time, slowing way down. So in field work, when I started to call it that, I just realized I needed to be in their time. I don't go with a list of questions. I don't go with, like, I'm here to get something. It's just basically, do we like each other? May I hang out with you? Can I help you do whatever it is you're doing? And following that thread, what arises that then, aha, you know, oh, I just understood that. Oh, now they're talking about that. They seem to be very focused on that. Well, of course, you have to learn a language, and I learned Spanish. But um, it was very much a kind of, you know, uh, flexible, um, I don't know, I guess sort of like multi-leveled relationship training where you're using information, intuition, action, you know, and, uh, and, and time, slow time, and being absorbent and reflective more than being goal-driven, you know. And so, good thing that you live long enough to have a method like that, you know, because it's really a slow method. But, um, but also recurring visits. So when I developed friendships, deep, you know, ceremonial friendships, shamanic friendships, friendships with children who were growing up, I would return. I had a life here too, and you know, eventually marriage and children and aging parents and all of those different things work, and all those things that um, keep us um, pegged, you know, in the place that we've chosen. But I found that each time that if I found, say, a family that I really connected with, and then I'd say, and I'd spend, you know, 
weeks or a couple of months with them. And then I come back a year or two years later. They'd say, ah, oh, you came back. Well, then you are real. When are, how long are you here for now? And when are you coming back again? People that I've worked with seem to feel that cycles make sense. Absolute continuity is not required, except the continuity of returning, you know? And then we have this kind of, like you do in any other connection with someone, you have this kind of like richness, and you know it's not forever, and then you have this separation, and the longing, and missing them, and then you get to return, and you have that joy, and they've saved up some new use or plant or story or something they found, and then they share that, and I bring things to share with them. And then on the practical level, I have, I, I share resources. I have brought, I've helped put a number of girls through school instead of, in Mexico, indigenous girls are often taken out of school um, when they're very young, like 13, and so uh, my family and I have helped a number of them get through high school or even into the beginning of university, um, and then just given them support of different kinds on a regular basis so that they know that that's there, and then, and then bring special gifts, sometimes symbolic gifts, sometimes things that don't cost money, but that are um, unusual. Um, well, the wonderful shaman, Curandero, that I work with in Mexico, I once brought him an abalone shell and they live in the mountains of Mexico, and they never seen the ocean and never seen an abalone shell. But um, the uh, it was actually an abalone shell that my dad had collected, you know, fifty years before. So it was a real transmission of one elder to another, and and it was a wonderful uh, moment of him saying, you know, oh, I didn't know the world made things like this. You know, and then he keeps it with his sacred objects, and so, and he asked me, "How do I take care of it?" Because it's a living object to him, you know. And I just said, "Well, you wash it with, you put some salt and some water, and wash it with salt water once in a while, and it gives it a drink and refreshes it." And he said, "Of course, of course, that makes sense." <laughs> <laughs> How beautiful the gift of the abalone. Mm-hmm. I've also been fortunate to spend some time in those high Mazatec mountains and uh, that part of Oaxaca. And um, yeah, there really are no words for um, the way in which, in my experience, the culture and the relationships they have to the land and the plants. It's like a, being in a place out of time. I'm the reality. I live in here in the Bay Area is so linear and concrete and tethered, pegged in a way. And yet, uh, having returned a few times there too, it's like, oh yeah, you're back, you are real. And you have these stories that you're bringing, we have these stories that we're bringing, and I noticed just the last time I was down there, um, a deepening of the relationship as well, and a willingness to say, let me show you this other piece of things we bring into ceremony, or ways to work with the energy or the body, or do you know about this plant? So there's a way in which there's a beautiful natural unfolding process. yeah, relationship. Um, I wonder if we could touch a little bit on the role of um, ritual in relating with plants. And Yes, well, what just popped into my head is I think plants really like ritual. Um, you know, for one thing, 
I mean, it has to be authentic ritual. It has to be that you're really feeling it. It's not by rote. You know, that doesn't really work as well, and we can all do that. But um, if you actually, if a, if a person actually drops, drops into um, uh, the kind of awareness that truly thoughtful, intuitive ritual, um, not imitative, but, but intuitive, um, requires that awareness, then you're, you know, then you're tuned in, and <clears throat> the plant, whatever it is, I mean, I probably, like a number of us, I have plants for, for whom the scent is, that's my reminder, you know, and, and I can just say, it just grounds me, you know, oh, hello, oh, hello to that scent, that makes me feel in a certain way, I, I know it already, it is like, precious, and I, I greet it, you know, I greet the plant, and I greet the scent, or I greet the plant through the scent, or sometimes, and they say this about, you know, in, uh, in different kinds of shamanic training too, that if you really learn the plant, then you don't even need to have the plant present, you just like really summon, summon it, like, you know, I find it's a good uh, meditation to close your eyes and really summon the scent of a plant that has um, been important in your life or maybe something even distant from childhood or the scent. You know, scents are so connected to memory and it's a really good exercise in being present and aware to smell something that isn't there and, and really, you know, then appreciate it. And it comes because once you've smelled it, really, actually it is stored there. And if you know you know, who, what it is that you're smelling, and then you have this ex experience of intimacy and recognition and gratitude, then that ritual, that's an invisible ritual. That's a ritual you can do while you're sitting in the audience, in fact, and we wouldn't even know it, you know? <laughs> but it would be um, uplifting or grounding or, you know, whatever in that way. Then there are all the ones that are, you know, you actually are making offerings with them or the ritual of making a meal, and then there's all the way up to the, you know, the big initiations and the kinds of things we're going to talk about more tomorrow, but, you know, the powerful plants that are, um, that put us through intense experiences and that are ritualized in order to draw the most from that experience, but also in order to honor that other species. And because a lot of those kinds of very powerful plants are also fraught with danger, and danger is part of transformative ritual, you know, traditionally, that's part of initiation. So that means that there, it has to be, you know, the, the ancestors would say it has to be um, shaped, and that shape of that ceremony or ritual or relationship has to be guarded, taught well, and then guarded. It's not, ha not haphazard, not, you know, 1967 LSD style, which I totally respect and honor and always like to say that. But, um, but that, you know, welcome chaos model isn't generally, it isn't what has been the tradition in taking people from one side of a dimension to the other. You know, it has involved a lot of ritual, a lot of care by others usually, and a lot of continuous reflection 
and well after as well, what we now call integration, you know, but well after as well. The whole thing is the ritual. Learning about it, engaging with it directly, integrating it afterwards. Critical, I think, to have those steps in place too, to prepare, to embark upon a journey, to have the experience of the journey, and then what do we do with the material that we've contacted or the insights that we think we got in, con in touch with? How do we bring that into life in a meaningful way that's beneficial for us as individuals and for our community and the extended community of beings, you know? Yeah, really, um, yes, how do you yeah. bring it back and what do you mm -hmm. do with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. As you talked about sense, I was also thinking about like the tradition of ikaros and song and just so many different ways that we can forge relationship with a plant and call that plant's essence into the present moment that doesn't have to require having the physical plant. There's all these different ways. It can be through memory, a heartfelt feeling, a scent, a song, um, an image that comes to mind. Yeah, really beautiful. And one thing that you shared in, in class was um, something along the lines of the best, one of the best gifts we can give a plant is a moment of our presence. That in and of itself can be a ritual, just that tender care and attention. Time. Time. I think, I think that what we have, what we're the least generous with these days is time. We all are so pressured and we feel like we have to do, you know, a little bit of everything in all these directions. And so that's it's a gift the plant can give us to say, you can only get to know me if you slow down and you really listen. Um, and maybe, you know, something else will speak to you while you're sitting here by this plant, by the creek, because there are birds speaking and there are other plants and the water is singing and, you know, there's memories in the land and all of these things. But even just in your, you know, urban life or any life, any aspect of your life, the time, breath, giving it a little longer than you think you have time for, because that's the extra gift, you know? That is, I think, just always a teacher. You've mentioned a few times these visionary allies, the what people might call entheogenic plants or psychedelic plants. Is there anything you want to just touch on there in the, our last few moments? Well, they're, they're each such a big topic, you know, but as a overall category. I mean, I think if I were an ethnobotanist or maybe an anthropologist, say, 200 years from now, looking back, and who knows what we will have gone through in another 200 years, of course, but if there still are anthropologists looking back in 200 years, um, I, at, at uh, you know, American, European, you know, uh, at global society, but most of all at privileged white society around the world, you know, um, at the late 20th century, early 21st century, I would say, oh, it seems that people discovered a whole new thing they could do with their minds and their attention in this period, and they had forgotten that, and they'd been separated from it, and they didn't have a language for it, and they didn't have techniques, and so they kind of like scrambled for a while, you know, and we have kind of been scrambling for a while. And this, even what is happening now, is still part of that, I think, you know. And we're trying, and some of us are really trying to train, be trained, train others, go to the source of some of these medicines, as we call them, medicinas, but, um, 
and learn that those places have changed too. You know, I started doing field work in the Amazon in 1976, and um, there was no, you know, outside interest in ayahuasca at that time. And um, and and I the tech and yet it was another moment in history, and things had already changed a lot by then. It's always changing, just like language is always ad- adapting and food systems and all of that. So, but this period right now, I think it's, you know, well-intended, but I think we're an individualist society still, that um, part of what hit us in the 1960s was the unifying vision that LSD offered us, and we were like, oh my God, we are actually one. Just we hadn't really said that in a long, long time, you know, and yet how to act like we are, we're still not very good at it. We're still an individualist-based society, and we work with that. But even in that, we're, we often work to heal the individual. And what I see in traditions that have had these medicines is that, or that have had any kind of initiation, say, into adulthood, is that you become the best person you can be for the good of the whole, for the good of the community. You know, that it is, yes, every individual needs to do the best they can do, and people need guidance, and there needs to be, you know, transmission and all of that continuity, but it's mostly so that the tribe or the line of people or the species can thrive and continue. And I and I think, so this is really a big picture on the psychedelic scene, but I, I think we're um, trying to remember that and we haven't quite gotten there yet basically, you know, that it's really for the collective. So all of this, you know, individual healing that we will be focusing on for a while and how to help other individuals who are suffering is so that we can weave the world together better and we can respect the people who have carried these, this basically hidden knowledge for so long and not commodify everything and not make, you know, certain ones into celebrities and all of that, but but actually, you know, deepen our respect for knowledge holders of every sort, literally psychedelic or just psychedelic awareness that has been in every culture around the world, you know? Yeah, beautifully said. It comes back full circle to continuing to extend care, you know, beyond the individual, to the collective, to all the different communities, plants, human, and beyond. Thank you, Kat. This has been such a wonderful, rich conversation that could go on forever. <laughs> but for now, we'll take a pause. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you, everyone, you, everyone, for being here. Yeah. <laughs> You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.